Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Blissoma. Blissoma offers healthy, sustainable personal care products that are intelligently designed, deeply supportive of the human body, and that help their clients address and improve complex skin challenges in a holistic way. You should be buying skincare from a brand that is clear and honest and committed to making sure you're receiving the right products for your unique skin needs through healthy ingredients, ethical business practices, and value. I'm all about value. I've been especially enjoying their Good Earth Exfoliant Powder. It's a face mask that actually comes in powder form. You add a little bit of water, and it is a gentle exfoliant that leaves your skin with the nicest glow from this turmeric and natural antioxidants. You can use the code ECOCHIC at blissoma.com for 20% off their Defend Ecosystems product line. Again, that's blissoma.com, B-L-I-S-S-O-M-A.com, and the code is ECOCHIC. Everything you do is making an impact in this world. This is not an elitist issue. This is a quality of life issue. How dare you? And I feel like it's my responsibility as a human being. So what? The world is at stake. You're listening to Eco Chic, a podcast about climate, sustainability, and eco-conscious lifestyles. What, like it's hard? Hey y'all, welcome back to Eco Chic. My name is Laura Diaz, and it is so nice to have you here today. You look great. You're in for a great episode. We are talking all about climate solutions that actually already exist, and we're speaking with Julia Jackson. She's committed to bringing together the brightest minds and leading solutionists to foster greater collaboration, driving mass awareness, and scaling game-changing solutions to urgently address the climate crisis. Julia Jackson is a second-generation proprietor of Jackson Family Wines, which we do touch on a bit. In 2018, Julia founded Grounded.org, a philanthropic initiative that convenes scientists, policymakers, investors, executives, activists, frontline organizations to elevate solutions that create systematic change in order to stay below our 1.5 degree Celsius global temperature rise and ensure a livable planet. Talk about a great life's purpose. Julia just has such a gift for convening people and thinking very big picture. Julia has dedicated herself to positively impacting our planet's trajectory and has worked to forge strategic partnerships between leading climate-focused organizations such as One Earth, Sea Legacy, Amazon Frontlines, and many others. She gives us such a great rundown of organizations that are doing good work during the episode, and I'm excited for y'all to listen to her excellent tips. 
Julia has served as a featured speaker at leading climate events hosted by the United Nations and Politico, and has also appeared in top-tier media outlets including Forbes, The Hill, NPR, and The Washington Post. On a personal note, Grounded is an organization that I really respect and I am quite aware of, so when this opportunity came up to speak with Julia, I jumped at it. I was very excited because Grounded is a really interesting organization in that it pulls together people from so many different sectors, and we do talk about the importance of that interdisciplinary work when it comes to climate solutions. Julia and I also really admire Drawdown as an organization. I feel like I talk about them in every episode. My middle name should be Drawdown, and she shares a little bit about her relationship with Paul Hawken, the founder of Drawdown, and how the work of other organizations has really influenced the trajectory and the work and the value that Grounded can truly provide. Julia is so thoughtful in her speech and feels like a very big picture thinker. We discuss her background, like I mentioned, we discuss a little bit of her family background in wine stewarding the land. We talk about the founding of Grounded and the value, again, of that interdisciplinary collaboration. Regenerative agriculture and ecocide, which I don't think I've ever discussed before on this show, so that was a fun one. We talk about carbon sinks, and we also talk about fires. We talk about today's fires on the west coast of the U.S., and Julia is so open and vulnerable and, again, just shares such a holistic understanding of the climate crisis and climate solutions. I'd also take this opportunity to encourage you to make a plan to vote. Are you voting by mail? Are you mailing that back in or dropping it off at your local election board office? Are you voting in person? Do you need to request time off? Are you able and willing to be a poll worker? Whatever your situation, please make a plan. I am not claiming to be a totally unbiased source or voice on the federal election, but I do feel like environmental conservation and finding solutions to the climate crisis should not be a divisive political issue. If you're interested in learning more about the federal scale climate solutions that we could see and that we're advocating for, I would recommend the podcast Political Climate. It's hosted by Julia Piper and by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute. Julia Piper was actually on this podcast here chatting with me about federal climate solutions, clean energy transition, a whole bunch of other policy level work, which I think is really interesting. And again, it's it's truly an unbiased, bipartisan resource, and I highly recommend it if you're interested. That was episode 110 that she was on, and I recommend that podcast a lot. If you enjoy this podcast, I encourage you to rate and review. Helps me out a lot. I appreciate it. I love seeing what you share with your friends, what you tag me in on social media at EcoChic Podcast. And I want to make sure that this is as open a dialogue as possible. I want to know what you like and I want to know what you want more of. So thank you so much for tuning in. Thanks for the ratings and the reviews and the tags and all of that greatness. So if you'd like to get in touch, all of my links are always in the show notes. And with that, let's get into today's episode. We're talking climate solutions. If we have everything we need to solve the climate crisis, why aren't we acting? We're talking with Julia Jackson of Grounded.org. Julia, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me today. I'm excited to have you and I appreciate you joining me from your life on the road as a climate refugee. Thank you so much for having me, Laura. This is definitely an interesting time to be alive as a human. Yeah, it is. Well, I'd love to just 
start, let's go way, way back. And I want to hear a little bit about how you became so passionate about the climate conversation and talking about climate change and bringing people into this climate movement. So take me back. When do you feel you were really first fueled as an environmentalist? Where did this all start? I'd say that growing up in a wine family, our crop is so dependent upon climactic functions like water, soil, air. And so vintners are naturally more sensitive to climate and soil. So I grew up with the philosophy of being a steward of the land and really taking care of the land in a wine family. I was always passionate about the environment, but I wasn't really aware of the urgency on the climate crisis piece until much later. And the pivotal point for me was when my father died of cancer around nine years ago. And I remember reading all these cancer books on what causes cancer. And every single book basically mentioned environmental degradation. And so that connection between our internal state of health and the carcinogens in the environment and what we eat, what we're exposed to and air quality, that was my gateway more into, I'd say, environmental literacy. Fast forward, I was working in the family business. I developed a program with um, Vital Voices, which was a organization founded by Hillary Clinton to support women entrepreneurs all throughout the world. And I found myself as a philanthropist really gravitating towards empowering women who were focused on environmental causes and on the front lines, whether it be microloans to women entrepreneurs in Tanzania or women really on the front lines in the Amazon. So I found myself really gravitating towards women in particular and in the environment in that intersection. I'd seen Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth and Leonardo's Before the Flood, and, and I knew that climate change was a problem, but I thought, okay, this is a problem 100 years out, 200 years out, nothing that I personally have to worry about in my day-to-day -day life, but it's a problem, and I support the environment. And then I just started reading more, I think, through that gateway of health in the environment. And I went down an environmental rabbit hole and started reading a lot about climate change. I found myself getting more and more, I guess you could say depressed, feeling hopeless, feeling despair, because a lot of what I was reading was pretty doom and gloom, pretty dire, based on science and scientific predictions. Fast forward 2017, my whole community experienced the Tubbs fire, and it was $9 billion worth of damage to our community. It felt like the apocalypse. I remember driving through the freeway and there was fire on the freeway. I was driving through like a narrow alley of fire and the hospital was burning <laughs> on the left-hand side. And I just remember that was my wake-up call on, okay, the climate crisis is right here and right now. Um, and that was 2017. And there needs to be way more action on this. I've learned through my work with the Leonardo DiCaprio Foundation and supporting through philanthropic grants, women on the front lines of the climate crisis that less than 3% of all philanthropic giving goes to the environment. So I decided as a philanthropist, I only wanted to focus on the environment because if we don't have a planet, nothing else matters. So I started focusing all my efforts there. And then after the 2017 fires, I had a wake up call, an epiphany. I actually ended up taking a sabbatical from my family business and having the crazy idea to launch my own environmental organization because I saw the white space was there were so many amazing organizations out there doing great work for the environment, 
but they're all competing for that less than 3% of philanthropic giving and they're all siloed doing their own thing. And I saw an opportunity to really de-silo climate and environmental efforts and get way more people collaborating together, get all the best climate solutionists I could find together under one roof and bring them to a summit. And then in the audience put funders, policymakers and corporations. So I have been super focused on climate ever since. We were supposed to have our second summit prior to COVID and then COVID hit. So now I've completely pivoted directions and I'm actually launching a platform with the BBC on climate solutions. It's going to be called the Climate Academy, posted on the ground website where we feature a bunch of different climate solutionists. So we're not just talking about the problem, we're actually showcasing, okay, here's all the organizations and individuals that are actually doing something to turn it around. So that's my evolution. (laughs) And I'm still learning a lot. And I have moments of feeling scared, but I still feel pretty optimistic we can turn this around because I feel like as a species, we're not really interpreting this as urgent as we need to be. And I think people are starting to wake up to the urgency. Yeah. Thank you for that. Well, it's interesting that you said you saw this opportunity to really de-silo the climate conversation because we were saying before, up until a few years ago, it was very siloed. It was scientists and then some chain yourself to a tree activists and (laughs) people advocating for waste or vegan for animal rights or all of these different issues that are not really competing issues at all. And when you put them under the same roof, it is so powerful. And I think that calling the people behind these ideas solutionists I also really like because it is so optimistic it really is because at the end of the day it's about solutions and it reminds me a lot also of Drawdown which is an organization that I love and uh, and I think what I like so much about Drawdown is that they mix different kinds of solutions up into one list so it's not just about properly recycling refrigerants but it's also about educating women and girls like you said So I would love to talk to you a little bit about how you bring these people together and what the value of that really is. So in the last few years, as you have been de-siloing this conversation and bringing all of these different solutionists together, what's the value of that? What does that look like? Like, why is that so important in our fight against climate change? Absolutely. First of all, Drawdown was my gateway into feeling hope. (laughs) Reading Drawdown gave me so much inspiration. And I actually met and befriended the founder of Drawdown, Paul Hawken, who then really cultivated a friendship with me and showed me what's possible. And now I'm sitting on his board for Regeneration, which is his next book um, about ending the climate crisis in one generation. And so he's a huge source of inspiration for me personally in his work and the whole organization that he built. That really was the antidote to my climate despair, reading Drawdown. So I share with you that love of and appreciation for Drawdown. Yeah, I feel like so many solutionists, they don't have enough funding. They don't have enough policy support or legislative support. They also are like, we have like 10 seconds left on the clock. I heard someone say like (laughs) a few months ago and that really resonated with me. And so I think they're feeling frustrated because they do, we have all the solutions possible. It's not like we're waiting for some silver bullet solution to be created in a lab. We actually have like drawdown shows 
every single solution to actually reverse the climate crisis. We just need to get to work to actually implement them. And I think that there's huge opportunity to not just get policy support and funding support, but really get the masses more aware of all these climate solutions because a lot of people feel overwhelmed, they feel hopeless, they don't know what they can do on an individual level, they think it's way beyond their control, and I felt that same exact way. But when you break down the climate crisis into bite-sized pieces on solutions, it is very achievable, and we tend to overcomplicate our approach to it. I think we just need to get to work and scale these solutions. I think that's important. And I also really like the idea of someone giving you this soundbite of we only have 10 seconds left on the clock. I heard something recently that was like, stop thinking of 2020 as the hottest year on record. Start thinking about it as the coolest year that you're going to experience for the rest of your life. And I was like, I was like, wow, I did not anticipate that sentence to go that way. I think sometimes you need that jolt to say, okay, the time is now, like I'm done pretending like climate change isn't impacting my life in some capacity. And like you said, we have these solutions. There's no reason that we're not implementing them beyond, quite frankly, the society that we live in and just the fact that money goes other places and policy support goes other places. And it's quite shameful because we have everything in our power to reverse things within a generation. So I'd love to talk to you a little bit about climate solutions because climate solutions get me really excited, especially as it's an area of incredible innovation. Every Mm -hmm. day, there's so much work being done on ultra-specific solutions from, again, like we said, refrigerants, but also proper storage for utility-scale solar. And I think there's a lot to be done and a lot of things that people think exist but don't necessarily or a lot of things that people don't even realize are as innovative as they are. So I'd love to hear a little bit about solutions. Like, what is your favorite wild card climate solution of today? Oh my gosh. It's really hard to say, is there a favorite solution? Because I feel like all of them are important. But I have come full circle to realize that there's so much in indigenous knowledge and wisdom we need to tap into and we need to marry scientific understanding and scientific innovative solutions with this idea of reciprocity with our natural environment and so my favorite solution i'd say is really what scientists have laid out as protecting 30 percent of the planet by 2030 because these are major carbon sinks and we can't destroy them and then think there's a technology that will be able to completely reverse the impacts of the climate crisis. So I think preserving the natural world is priority number one, like the Amazon, all these vital carbon sinks, And 80% of the most biodiverse regions in the world are occupied by indigenous communities, yet they're only 5% of humanity's population. And we're booting them out of these territories, yet they are literally the best caretakers of these territories in these bioregions. So I think we need to empower them to protect these and steward these bioregions because that protects our survival. So it's in our selfish best interest to empower indigenous communities, boots on the ground, communities that are really defending their territories and to reach protecting 30% of the planet by 2030 in order to stay below 1.5 degrees Celsius is going to be a huge effort, yet a statistic that is mind-boggling to me but also gives me optimism is it will only take 1% of global GDP, which is nothing if all these countries start um, pulling their resources for this. So 
I'd say that, of course, like getting rid of the fossil fuel industry, phasing to renewable energy is like also, that that to me is like the precursor solution. But we can't be destroying these vital carbon sinks that sequester gigatons upon gigatons of atmospheric carbon and, and expect ourselves to be okay. Another solution that tags along to the 30 by 30 goal is legislative reform. So there's an organization I really love called Ecocide Law, co-founded by Jojo Mehta and um, Polly Higgins, who passed away a few years ago. But Ecocide Law basically is the idea of getting the International Criminal Court to adopt ecocide as the fifth crime against humanity, which is up there with homicide, genocide. This legislative piece, I think, is key to informing corporate practices and policy decisions. So um, I come from a family of land use attorneys. My mother and father were both attorneys, and I never thought I'd be <laughs> coming full circle and loving legal applications of things. But I do think it's really important. Like there's earth justice out there. There's rights of nature. There's ecocide law to really have lawyers defending our planet and defending territories that are sequestering a lot of carbon, like the Amazon alone sequesters 5% of global greenhouse gas emissions, which is massive. So we have to take care of it. And I think we need to regenerate places we've destroyed as well. So I hope I didn't go on too long about. No, that's awesome. I feel as though preserving land is such an underrated response as a climate solution, because it is quite often that people think we need these big sexy carbon capture machines or things that they might be helpful but they don't exist yet or things that are just not nearly as important as making sure that you're preserving what you have I think about it a lot actually kind of like skincare which is perhaps a little shallow but I'm like I'd rather just put on my sunscreen and take care of myself now than worry about it in 20 years exactly Yeah, it's just, it's a matter of preservation. Also, I really like that you mentioned the Amazon so frequently, because when we talk about ecocide, when you talk about loss of carbon sinks, I think about how up in arms the internet was about the fires in the Amazon a year ago that are still going on today. And I think that when you talk about ecocide and influencing corporations to really take account of how they're treating the land and how they are getting their product in the first place or mining their products in the first place. I just think it's all very full circle and it's all a lot more connected than people realize. Absolutely. I mean, our biosphere is so interconnected. I think people in general have a out of sight, out of mind mentality until it happens to them. Like it's not in my backyard, but maybe it's in your backyard. But the deforestation of the Amazon is directly correlated to thawing permafrost or the rapidly melting Arctic. And it's all interconnected because our biosphere is this beautiful functioning uh, unit and unified system. So that's why I think preserving these carbon sinks is so important. I learned that the American prairie grasslands used to be basically as efficient as the Amazon at sequestering carbon. And we're down to less than 3% of American prairie grasslands. And that last 3% is occupied by Native Americans, yet there's corporations trying to boot them out of that territory. I think we should actually be reclaiming and giving back some of the American prairie grasslands to have indigenous communities steward that land so that we can regenerate it and make it function as another very massive carbon sink, just like it used to be, just like the Amazon. That to me, not just caretaking and protecting 30% of the planet by 2030. And some scientists say like the global safety net framework from One Earth, which is has just come out, it's amazing, says all the scientists say 
it's actually 50% of the planet we need to preserve by 2030, not 30%. Oh, wow. Yeah, but I think we need to be regenerating fallow land. We need to be regenerating previous carbon sinks. And nature's really intelligent and efficient. And that's what gives me hope because although there's so much distraction, there's also a lot of resiliency and the ability for the natural world to regenerate. Wow, that's really powerful. I really, really appreciate you sharing that. I don't think that I speak nearly enough about the value of nature and the value of just truly preserving what we have and regenerative land use practices are just so important. And I also think it's interesting that you said earlier, you, you grew up in a family that really valued the land and was quite in touch with the way that the environment was serving you in a sense. And yeah. I think that it gives you another level of understanding when you grow up understanding that. For grapes, please correct me if I'm wrong because I'm, you know, not an expert merely on any sort of level, but for grapes, you need quite dry soil and dry conditions. And it also is quite temperamental. There's kind of a sweet spot. Sometimes it's too dry. And then if it's too dry, you also can get fires and you can also, so it's, it's all about a balancing act with nature. So I would also love to talk about fires a little bit and how you feel as though the fires that are currently going on that have displaced you today, I think a lot of people are realizing that the climate crisis is here today. So tell yeah. me a little bit about your experience in and hearing the responses to the fires today, especially relating to climate. Yeah, thank you for asking. You know, right now I'm, I'm feeling more grounded because I actually, as I was sharing with you earlier, I'm in Sedona, Arizona, where the air quality index is much greater quality air than it is back home at the moment. Um, I've been on the road. I feel like a climate refugee. Wallbridge fire forced me to evacuate my home in Hillsburg. And then I drove up to Oregon and then the fires happened up there. And then I drove to Washington and then the fires happened up there. And so then I drove to Idaho and then the smoke covered over Idaho. And then I went to Montana and the smoke followed me to Montana. And then I went on the AQI air quality index app and saw that with the seven day forecast, Sedona, Arizona had the cleanest air. And so I decided to come here and park here because climate week is next week. And I have a lot of prepping to do for that and need to breathe fresh air. I also lost my home last year to the Kincaid fire. So I'm in a state where I'm a little triggered right now from memories of smoke and experiencing that loss and fleeing from my home in the night from a massive fire. So I've survived through a fire before and I've healed through it, but it just gives me more conviction about the urgency of the climate crisis and why I'm doing the work I'm doing. Wow, wow, I am so, so, so sorry. I did not realize that you lost your home last year and oh, my heart breaks for you. I'm really so sorry. And mm. I think that you're completely correct in saying that it gives some sense of urgency to the work that you're doing and some sense of, I don't want to say importance because all climate work is important, but it gives you some personal stake in the matter. And it's you saying, okay, I know that I'm affected by it. I know I'm not the only one and it's yeah. time to get things done and get people together and get those solutions underway. So yeah. switching gears a little bit, I'd love to hear about grounded and the work that you're doing now and the way that you've been able to really pull these people together like we've said and pulling people into a summit and and I just want to hear about grounded what is the value of grounded today 
Thank you. I think to really survive this crisis, we need to build community and and bring like-minded people together and give people some hope that there are solutions out there. We can turn this around. We have all the solutions. We need to get to work because you're very climate literate. I learned just a few years ago about parts per million in the atmosphere. I didn't know about it, but basically scientists say the livable zone of parts per million in the atmosphere, I think is below 350 parts per million in the atmosphere. And currently we are at 417 last I checked, I think according to a report in June and counting and the point of no return is basically now up to 450 parts per million. So for those listening, a part per million is equal to 8 billion tons of carbon. So billions of tons of carbon are being emitted into our atmosphere every year. I think it's around three to four parts per million. So that that's quite a lot of carbon. That's billions of tons and it's causing this greenhouse gas effect where those gases are just being trapped in the atmosphere like a greenhouse. And so it's causing positive feedback loops and these warming temperatures are actually speeding up quite rapidly because of the concentration of those greenhouse gas emissions. And so you hear about carbon capturing technologies, they're aiming to suck the carbon out of the atmosphere so that we can get rid of that greenhouse gas effect. But those technologies still have a long way to go. But with Grounded, I think I was learning as I developed it. I like to read, but I didn't understand completely the urgency of the climate crisis. And then it hit me like a freight train and I felt this huge sense of urgency and passion and almost desperation, to be honest, to find climate solutions because it felt so dire. And I just started cold calling people, cold emailing solutionists through my research. A lot of it had to do with drawdown, um, but there were other bodies of research on solutions I came across, whether it was regenerative ag solutionists, um, renewable energy solutionists, alternatives to plastic involving algae solutionists. There's so many different levers when it comes to climate and they're all important. And then of course, like empowering indigenous communities. So I brought all of these people together really through just reaching out to them and expressing my sense of urgency and my vision for bringing them together. And surprisingly, a lot of them said yes and showed up. And then from there built lifelong relationships and felt inspired and optimistic that here are all these amazing solutionists. I'm not a climate scientist, but I I am good at convening people and finding the right solutionists and feeling semi-discerning of who's just talking and who's an actual doer. And so there were a lot of doers that came and they were supposed to come back and we were bringing more to the second summit and then COVID hit. So now we're pivoting online to the Climate Academy where we hope to get way more eyeballs because at a summit you can inspire like 300, 400 people, which is nice. And it's great for community building. And I love this community we've built through Grounded. Not to say we'll never do a summit again, but the times right now are just so uncertain with doing a summit. And so the silver lining has been, and the vision is that we can get more eyeballs on climate solutions. And that's why we're partnering with BBC and because they have millions of viewers And so we're basically bringing our summit online and doing the panels and the topics that we would have done at the second summit and doing seven minute videos with BBC on specific climate solutions. So our first one we're launching for the Climate Academy will be on ocean solutions with 
Lahua Kamalu, a Polynesian voyager, and she is amazing at articulating the need for indigenous wisdom when it comes to ocean conservation. And then Christina Mittermeier is one of the founders of Sea Legacy. And so they're doing a joint conversation together. Wow. I can't wait to tune in. I'll tell you that I will be one of, or I guess one set of eyeballs. I was going to say one of those eyeballs, but I guess I'll be in two of those eyeballs. I also think it's really cool that you mentioned in the beginning that there is a lot of competition between organizations to secure that 3% of philanthropic funding that goes to environmental organizations. So I would also love to hear a little bit if you're okay and if you're open sharing a little bit about funding and how you decide where you feel your money is best spent, essentially? Yeah, absolutely. So I think to break it down for people, too, because it can seem overwhelming, I think a dollar goes a long way. Even micro donations, like if we got the masses to care about specific solutions, there's like, you look at Bernie Sanders and how much he was able to build such a big movement and campaign. We need to do the same for climate solutions. So not underestimate the power of the masses and how far even $5 can go. Um, So I think that there are individual solutions and then there are systemic solutions. Um, And on an individual basis, I think, and I'll get to the philanthropy in a second. On an individual basis, I think that, of course, there are solutions like driving electric and putting solar on your roof. And, and recycling, those are like the, the basics that everyone knows, but there's so many climate solutions on an individual level that I think are also super important, like voting for one um, is a climate solution on an individual level, who you bank with, because a lot of banks contribute to the climate crisis through extractive practices. Amalgamated Bank is one that is fully divested from fossil fuels and Bank of the West is another bank that has a really great plan. So I hope other banks can catch on, but who you bank with is key because your dollar goes towards basically contributing to some bad practices. And that was something that was eye-opening to me. Um, Another solution on an individual level is food waste, which you saw in Drawdown. I think the statistic is that if food waste were its own country, the country of food waste, it would be the third largest contributor of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. So make sure you eat everything on your plate eat local, eat in season, support farmers markets, support local farmers. I think that's super important. And then on an individual basis, one last one I'll leave people with is actually what you wear. The fashion industry, like fast fashion in particular, contributes to 10% of global greenhouse gas emissions, which is insane. And, And no one realizes how dirty an industry that is and how much it contributes to the climate crisis. So make, making sure that whatever clothing you're supporting is conscious and eco-friendly, but also re-wearing some of your old clothes. Because I don't think we need more stuff. We're trained to just consume and consume and consume. So a lot of companies might not like me saying this, but I think consuming less, shopping less is a, is a solution to the climate crisis. Unless you're supporting very ethical companies that are very, have very high climate standards on their supply chain. So anyways, those are individual solutions that I think are important for people to hear. And then systemic solutions, and this is where philanthropic dollars are useful. I think really supporting more 
on the grassroots on the ground organizations is important. And we need to scale up less than 3% of all philanthropic giving going to the environment. So I think supporting indigenous organizations is really important. Like there's a, an amazing organization called Amazon Frontlines. It's indigenous led and it's about protecting the Amazon, which is a big carbon sink. There's just so many boots on the ground organizations out there. I mean, of course, Ecoside Law could use more funding um, <laughs> to really legislate and mandate protection for these carbon sinks. I think like the carbon capturing technologies and solutions will have a lot of money already behind them. So I think it's important to really support boots on the ground organizations that are on the front lines of the climate crisis that are conserving carbon sinks. I think we should be supporting way more indigenous communities. There's another great organization founded by Peter Seligman called Neotero, which is aiming to do just that. There's the global safety net from One Earth that I mentioned, which is mapping out all the biodiverse regions we must protect by 2030 if we want to stay below 1.5 degrees Celsius. So yeah, Amazon Frontlines is an organization. Neotero is an organization. One Earth is an organization. Um, Ecoside Law is an organization. I mean, I could go on and on and on, but I hope that's helpful. There's so many great organizations out there of doers that aren't just going to be taking people's money and keeping it up top. They actually give it to people on the ground. I have to make a really comprehensive list because I cannot believe you just rattled all of those solutions and all of those organizations off the top of your head because you're clearly so invested in this movement that you know every corner of it and I am in such admiration. So thank you so much for sharing all of that. And I also have to say that I think banking is one that people are slowly becoming more aware of, but is still not openly talked about enough. And voting as a climate solution is incredibly important because as we gear up for our upcoming election in the U.S., there is a lot of discussion around who has a climate plan. And even if it's not the most climate conscious candidate, maybe we're going to have to settle because at least they'll appoint someone to carry something out. So I think another thing that people don't realize, I, I read a lot of climate action plans just in the work that I do for different cities. And a lot of climate action plans, people would be surprised to think that a measure of community investment for people is just being able to register to vote. Because if you're registered to vote, you have the time to care about people and to care about your local policies and what's happening in your area. And yeah, so I think a lot of people would be surprised to learn that actually voter registration is a stat that's used to measure the willingness of a community to be invested in itself. So I'd love to talk to you about voting. I'd love to talk to you about the national scale legislation that we need to be seeing if we're going to make a reasonable attempt to save the planet, quite frankly. Absolutely. I think, well, on a federal level, we definitely need to get back into the Paris Agreement because whether we like it or not, we have a moral responsibility. And if other countries are saying that we're lackadaisical on our approach to climate, um, even symbolically, even if you can say Paris isn't even that efficient, it should become more. But at least there are commitments being made by world leaders. But what's happened is they've seen the U.S. fall away from the Paris Agreement. And so they're slacking on their climate commitment. I was reading that only two countries are on track to reach their 1.5 degree target, which is insane. Morocco and, and Gambia. <laughs> I mean, wow. I think... Costa Rica has a great plan too, so they're they're going to be up there as well. But there needs there needs to be way more countries actually coming together 
to stay below 1.5 degrees and changing their infrastructure to meet the Paris Agreement. And so that's why I think legislative organizations like Ecocide Law, Rights of Nature, Earth Justice are key to helping create guardrails for these verbal commitments at like a Paris Agreement. But for the U.S., I think we need to re-enter the Paris Agreement. And I know Biden has said that he would if he were president. And he actually has evolved quite a bit. I've been following him and his, um, I'm sure you have too, and how he articulates climate. And he is being equipped with more up-to-date science and the urgency of it. And I, I feel like he's really evolved as a candidate. I was very concerned because he seemed very moderate on climate, which is better than denying it completely. But he had a long way to go and I feel like he's evolving, it, definitely getting way better advice on the climate crisis. So I think he sees that it's a crisis and voting is such a huge solution to getting a leader in office that will actually treat this as the existential crisis that it is. So on a federal level, getting back into the Paris Agreement. And then also, I think that when I hear a lot of policymakers in the U.S. in particular articulate climate, it's all about like renewable energy, green economy, which is super important, phasing out of fossil fuels. But I don't hear a lot of conversations around biodiversity and our carbon sinks and empowering indigenous communities within the U.S. because that's a huge climate solution. I have been hearing a lot about regenerative agriculture and some bills around that. And regenerative agriculture as a solution can sequester a lot of atmospheric carbon if it's scaled globally. And regenerative agriculture really is a form of, of farming that omits harsh chemicals, um, synthetic chemicals that are really detrimental to soil health. It involves no tilling and really stewarding soil to become healthy so there's more microbial activity. And when there's more microbial activity in the soil and the soil is healthier, it actually acts as a climate solution because it can draw down more atmospheric carbon through photosynthesis and through the mycelium network underneath. So our soil is a huge climate solution and we're killing our soil through modern day agricultural practices. So I think on a policy level, recognizing that we need to scale and, and lead on farming practices because our farming practices in the US are so detrimental to the climate. I mean, we often talk about carbon as a contributor to the climate crisis, but there's so many short-lived greenhouse gases that are more potent than CO2, like methane or nitrous oxide from synthetic nitrogen. But is also going into the atmosphere, or like you mentioned earlier, HFCs through refrigerants. Um, so there's so many other more deadly potent gases that are also accumulating in the atmosphere. So it's not just CO2, it's like a hodgepodge of so many greenhouse gas emissions that are accumulating and it's a perfect storm. So we really need to get our act together to really farm the right way and address all of these global greenhouse gases through policy and technology and empowering indigenous communities. Yeah, I really appreciate you sharing all of that. And I also think that when you started, you were mentioning that you feel as though Joe Biden is getting more current advice and more current topics. And that really hit on a point that I don't think a lot of people realize when we're saying that leaders aren't necessarily acting as urgently as they should these are not climate scientists. These are politicians and they have people around them that are informing those decisions. And to say that someone's not acting just because they're not a climate scientist isn't an excuse. There are people in the circle that are going to speak up and educate the masses and say, okay, this is the most reasonable solution 
backed by science for us to really get a hold of how we are impacting the planet and how we are securing the longevity of this country and this economy and whatever we want to advocate for in that point. So I think also what you said at the beginning that it doesn't really matter where you're putting your money if we don't have a planet to actually do those activities on. So I I resonated with a lot of things in that moment. And I, again, I love that you spoke on regenerative agriculture because it's a topic that I do not approach very often. And I think sometimes it's hard for people to conceptualize agriculture because it's similar to that throwaway culture or that something that's happening outside of your backyard or outside of your immediate purview. And people think of these really idealistic like farmers on their little tractors tilling the land and getting all their corn and selling that at the farmer's market. And that's not real life a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. And I also think about monocultures, even like lawns in a big city, you have a lawn that's like a perfectly manicured green thing versus something with weeds and flowers and growing naturally. And that wild quote unquote lawn is so much healthier than your beautiful manicured American dream of a lawn. So I think getting people in touch with what's genuinely happening to the food that comes into their life, with the products that are coming into their life, with the concept that we have this new reckoning with waste and saying, okay, if I'm throwing something away, it has to go somewhere. But that product and that food and whatever it is also had a life before you and making sure that it's coming to you at the right place. Check out the Climate Academy on our website, grounded.org. We'll be launching more climate solutions by different topics to give people some action items and hope and building a community that way. And I'd say the biggest solution um, is voting. Like get out there, vote. The biggest solution in the next six weeks. So if you really want to make a difference to the climate crisis, get out there and register to vote. I think that's so important to turning this around. Thank you again so, so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation with Julia Jackson, grounded.org. All of the resources will be in the show notes. If you've got a minute, rate and review the show. If you have a friend you think would really enjoy this conversation, send it to them. I appreciate it. Send it in your family group chat. Send it to everyone you know. Thanks again so much for tuning in. I hope you're having an awesome week and I will talk to you really soon. Bye. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.